be a lady tonight Luck be a lady tonight Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck be a lady tonight Welcome back to the Philippidic Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be finishing up with my review of Solar Lottery. I went chapter by chapter in the last five episodes, so that I reserved this episode as wrap-up and some final thoughts. Um, obviously, I think it's a good book. Uh, it's worth reading. It's not one that Philip Kiddick fans should avoid, and I think that's true of most of his early novels. Um, shouldn't just read the late stuff. In fact, that's where I want to start out here. When I first read some of the works of Philip K. Dick, I guess it would have been 2001 or 2002. I think I was living in Oregon at the time. And I read some of his works, his novels, um, and just what I could find at the library. And I looked at some supplementary materials as well, including that documentary, The Gospel According to Philip K. Dick. Uh, that's a documentary that focuses on the events of 1973 and the exegesis and how those events influenced Dick's later career. It really doesn't say much about Dick as um, a writer. And there's the other, the I think it's a BBC documentary, that kind of does the same thing, although it's got a broader look at his, his career. I took from these early explorations of Dick's work the assumption that Dick matured as a writer. And of course, all writers will mature over time, but I also took from this an idea that his biggest contributions to literature and to science fiction were in his religious and world-bending works, the stuff he wrote later, basically, the stuff from the 60s and 70s and 80s, and kind of disregarding the stuff from the 50s. I read novels such as The Three Stigmata, Palmer Eltridge, or Ubik, or even Time Out of Joint, which I remember once thinking was kind of the start of his real serious career. Then I just sort of assumed earlier work, the stuff from the 50s, was, was run-of-the-mill. Run-of-the-mill sci-fi that revealed Dick as a, more of a copier than an original thinker. Obviously, when you look at that, there were world-bending works in some of the early 1950s stuff. Uh, the, the World She Wanted, the short story, certainly Eye in the Sky. I mean, on, on that very level, we can't do that. But I think more importantly, there are ideas in his early works, in his early novels, that aren't there as strongly in his later works, and they have to be taken seriously and examined. To some degree, my views are almost opposite now. I, I tend to hate the religious stuff that came at the end of his career. I still, of course, respect and, and honor the middle work that dealt more with the world-bending, the who am I kind of questions, the, the what is human question. And I think his early work is some of the, but I think his most early work is some of the most politically powerful stuff he ever wrote. And Solar Lottery certainly fits into this tradition. So I want to here make an argument for the, the special, the, the, the importance of the Solar Lottery to Philip Dick, and to us today. One thing that this novel establishes about Dick is that he was never so simple as to say there's a real reality under an existing one. It's, you know, the idea that we kind of live in the matrix. In Dick's works, almost throughout them, but it starts here, certainly. It's in stories as well, but as far as novels go, it starts here right away. This idea that the false front is as true as what it's covering up. That it's not so much alternate realities as as in multiple realities, all of which are fully true and fully manifest and, and fully realized. 
when th writing about this, I thought of the Kinkos. I don't know if it's a Kinkos, but it's, it's basically a Kinkos in The Wire. So in The Wire, you have um, this drug dealing organization, and they set up fronts. And the front's like a funeral home, but they also set up this Kinkos, right? And the main character in that story, at least one of the main characters in the story, Stringer Bell, the kind of the leader of that group, wants to run the Kinkos like a real business, right? He doesn't want to just be a front. That is kind of what I'm thinking about here, that both work simultaneously. It's both a front and a real functioning, profitable Kinkos. Dick's false fronts coexist alongside with what's being covered up, in other words. Thus, in Solar Lottery, we have both feudalism and capitalism. We have both desperation and inequality and prosperity. Things are both random and they're being planned. Right? That's both for the case for Varick and, and Cartwright. You know, there's a kind of a randomness to the world, but it's also planned or, or, or controlled or predestined, in the case of Cartwright, manipulation of the bottle. The world is stagnant, but it's also capable of, of change. These are both fully realized truths, and they're competing for supremacy. Our dilemma is partially to manage both of these realities or to help the one or the other succeed. In Solar Lottery, the characters are not fighting f for truth, to know the truth, to find out where they are in the world. They know very well where they are. They are fighting for change or, at the very least, political benefits or to improve their own situation. The line between feudalism and capitalism is very, very thin in this novel. In fact, it's barely visible. Now imagine with me the collapse of the state, the collapse of government. And this may actually be the case. We find in societies and governments increasingly incapable of governing at all by traditional political parties and institutions, everything from the rise of Trump to Brexit to stagnation in Congress shows all this shows again and again that traditional political leadership is not really working the way it used to but let's 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 take the apocalyptic scenario the government collapses what would take over would we end up like mad max fury road serving to the death people like Amorton john and his kind perhaps but i find a more likely situation corporate feudalism not the strong man or if there's a strong man, it'll be an economic strong man, the one who owns the property. We already see the growing gap between the wealthy and the poor. But we also see growing cultural separation between the rich and the poor. And that's both, um, at the same time, you might have global cultural homogenization at one level, but you're also creating huge gaps between like the inner city um, and the suburbs in a place like the West or in the places like India or China between the city center where the wealthy live, and the slums. In some places, there's even physical separation as the rich move into gated communities or even travel through cities on helicopters using roofs as landing zones. And I, I don't have the source for that, but I remember hearing that that's the case in places like Rio de Janeiro or Brasilia, where the rich actually never even touch the street. I once tutored a girl in Taipei who basically was either in the car, at her school, or in her gated community. And she never really spent any time on the streets. The rich already have private police, security guards. They have private legal infrastructures. They can basically buy their justice if they want. Armies of lawyers. How long until corporations have private armed forces? I don't think it's far. And you probably can come up with examples where they have that. Those who point out there's a really thin line between 
like the drug trade and capitalism, you know, are probably have, you know, I think they have a point. But of course, let's remember that the drug trade has its private armies already. Employees sometimes need to sign oaths not to take jobs at competitors. Uh, investors see, or inventors see their creations owned by corporations. They lose all control. They're like serfs. How long until employees become serfs in name as well as in practice? In Solar Lottery, merely having a job is a requirement to any social status at all. The main separation between the unclassified and the classified is that the classified have jobs. While some unclassified do work as serfs, they lack any rights. They can be killed at will, and there's nothing that can be done for it. And this is, of course, the fate of Eleanor, one of our main characters, who is a, a telepath, but an unclassified, sworn to a fealty oath to Varric, and unceremoniously killed off in the final pages of the novel. Mostly, though, the unclassified are unemployed or unemployable. They lack the skills to function in the economy. This is all tied into what I call the tragedy of post-scarcity. As anarchists and even communists from the time of Marx and Kropotkin knew, post-scarcity, meaning the condition in which all necessary and many other goods are no longer scarce, this was the foundation of social equality. Essentially, why hoard when there is more than enough to go around? But just to be clear on post-scarcity, I mean, how we get there is, is not really clear. Um, but we're, we're seeming to be there or we're getting there. It could be through technology, through increased productivity. Uh, I guess the ideal version of post-scarcity, the perfect model of it would be the replicator in Star Trek, right? Where basically everything is so cheap and readily available that you just take what you need from it. Uh, a maker or such, like an elaborate 3D printer in every home. But anarchists and communists who were hostile to capitalism also saw it as the key to abolishing work. As productivity goes up, so does the need for us to work. It goes down. Right? There just doesn't need to be as many of us running the factories, working on the fields. Right? In the last century and a half, we've gone from 90% of the people working in fields to something like 3-4%. Right? Employment in manufacturing, making stuff is going down as well. Most of us don't anymore. Most of us are, are in caring or service sectors now, um, providing various services. Even that could be automated in the future. I urge you all to read uh, James Levinson's book, No More Work, or his earlier book, The End of Thrift, or Against Thrift, something like that. Both of these works talk about this question of, of consumer spending, the movement to a consumer economy, and the eventual abolition of work. The cause of nearly all our economic distress in recent years, and I, I mean that, I should say the last century, has been the inability of the working class to consume what it makes. Right? Overproduction, in other words, is our problem, not consumption. As we approach post-scarcity, and we probably are already there in terms of food, shelter, and clothing, we waste, I think the United States wastes enough food to end world hunger. That's just one country, wastes enough food to end world hunger. Uh, in my town of Taipei, you walk through the streets, you see homeless people in empty apartments, um, hundreds and hundreds of empty apartments. So, And we've seen, that we have the technology to 3D print homes, um, there's no reason people are homeless anymore. 
And for clothing, you know, just open up your, your, your closet and you'll know your post-scarcity in, in clothing probably. So, but as, that ha as we approach this for more and more goods, and automation makes words less valuable, and we, we have essentially two choices. Oh, well, one thing to add, like on media, media, we're also post-scarcity, right? If I can go online and download a movie or watch anything, you know, you got Netflix, which basically is a post-scarcity model of, of media, you know, why hoard it, right? Why do you need a thousand CDs, uh, DVDs, when you can just get everything on Netflix? Anyways. We have a couple choices here. We can either continue to divide resources based on the amount of paper we have in our wallets, privatize parts of the internet, privatize more and more to make sure that we have infor we, we make scarcity where maybe none existed before or there's no need for it. This will do most of us desperation as fewer and fewer of us are needed to do the jobs of, of everyday life. Or, and I'll just come on and say it, we can embrace communism we can get to some form of socialism whether it's through a basic income whether it's through just kind of a, a gift economy you know the replicator whatever we do we need you know we need to provide everyone's needs dick carefully sets up the tragedy of post-scarcity in this novel and he's going to come back to it again and again and again he makes the point that by giving us both inequality and automation in this book. Automation is always there. It's always in the backdrop. There's there's not there's one little discussion about it, but again in every chapter it's there, automation. Overproduction and massive poverty. As he writes in an early chapter, the problem is not one of production anymore, but one of consumption. How do how do we allow people to consume and yet keep social distinctions? Or do we just get rid of the social distinctions? The rulers of the world in Solar Lottery choose inequality. And they justify it not through social Darwinism, which is sort of what we still do. Like, you're poor because you don't work hard. You're rich because you worked hard. People voted for Trump because he's rich, so he must be a good business person, a good leader. Social Darwinism, right? You get what you pay for. You get what you earn. Instead, in Solar Lottery, this is all justified by luck. And they actually, there's a character, I think, yeah, I think it's Moore, talks about this. He says, this is a more just system, right? We can't blame anyone. It's just luck if we're classified or unclassified or if we're quiz master or not. It's, it's all just randomness. One is put in a position of power through luck. But again, is this very far from the world we live in? The difference between most rich people and most poor people, and I'm willing to allow some social mobility here, but the difference between most rich and most poor comes down to luck. What family were you born into? What country were you born into? Will you have an education? Will you have a good job? Will you be in a safe neighborhood? Will you be raised in a place where there's a lot more levels of crime? That's genetic luck. That's just the race you're born into, the class you're born into, the place you're born into, right? The gender you're born, you know, still for most of the world, gender is a key distinction between uh, if you're going to get an education or not. This is largely a factor of where you're born and who your parents are, right? On a global scale, this is even more clear. As it is a genetic lottery that determines if we're born into a rich country, the global gated community, or if you're born in the poor country, which is Mike Davis's Planet of Slums, another book you all should read. Solar Lottery is one of a handful of early novels that plays with the idea of reform from within the system. Dick is not at this stage a revolutionary, it seems. 
he is going to get there, I think, in works such as Radio Free Albemuth or Our Friends from Foldux 8. He's not a revolutionary here, though. He does think change needs to come from within and that an internal manipulator may tweak a system in substantial ways. Other early novels and stories that explore this idea include Paycheck, The Man Who Japed, The World Jones Made, and Vulcan's Hammer. All of these works give us characters who are fully within the system. They're middle managers or bureaucrats or, or other servants of the institution. And over the course of the novel, they'll hack the system from within and create a new foundation for some change. Now, we never see what that change is. We certainly don't in The Man Who Japed. In Solar Lottery, it just ends with Bentley becomes Quizmaster and the future is completely unwritten. It's a very unsatisfying novel in that way. We don't get the happy picture. We don't get kind of the easy picture we get like in Tolkien where Aragorn becomes king and everything's set right almost immediately. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know about Bentley's trouble and that would be an interesting sequel to Solar Lottery to see what Bentley could do. But Dick's not really interested in that. He's interested in saying this is the this is how change can be done, tweaking the system from within. In Solar Lottery, we have Cartwright hacking the bottle to become Quizmaster and then setting up who can be the next few Quizmasters. And same people as we set up what the next numbers are going to be. In a sense, he transformed the lottery, which is a monarchy, you know, in a sense, it's a genetic lottery. Monarchy is a genetic lottery, right? Changed that monarchy into a system of planned imperial secession, such as what you had in the early um, Arabic empires and I think in the early Roman Empire too, where each emperor could choose their successor, usually in the family, but not necessarily. Rather than the luck, we have planned succession. Now, is this better? Dick does not really tell us how it's going to end up, but he does suggest that enough has changed to make some positive benefits at least imaginable. But neither system may appeal to our democratic ideals. Where we get radical outside change is from the Prestonites, who envision a new frontier that can break humanity out of its political and social stagnation. So if within the belly of the beast, change must come from within and cannot really be envisioned, there is always the new world. The final lines of the novel emphasize the importance of the frontier to the growth of civilizations and cultural revival. But again, we're not, we don't know what's going to happen on the flame disc. We don't know what the colonists and the settlers who go out there are going to, what kind of world they're going to set up. Uh, we can tease that. We can get an idea of what that might look like from Dick's other works, but uh, we don't get it here. We are tested with the idea that Preston is an old man out there, merely another symbol of the old world, holding on to his greedy, his empire greedily, hoarding. The same way Varric is hoarding on to power, right? And in fact, that, and I just thought of that, that Varric's kind of first act is when he loses his job as Quizmaster is to try to get it back, right? He's like the old man clinging to power in an institution or a corporation or a family. And we get that with Preston. We think, oh, Preston's just another one of those old men, you know, another gerontocracy. But in fact, he's died. He's left the flame disc open to the imagination of the newcomers. He does not tell us what kind of world should be set up there. You know, we don't have his books. He, he seemed to have written books about it, but that was mostly about how there is a world out there. He doesn't say it should be this way or that way. Like the most brilliant elders of our world, Preston knew when to die and when to let the children take charge when to let us take charge. And I think 
we'll come back to this theme a lot with uh, the crack in space, because that's the major theme there, is how the old cling to power. There's another angle for hope, and that is in community. We're given many communities in this novel. We got the Teep Core, the Hills, which are essentially the corporate domain. We have the Prestonites, and we have the Pelagbot, who is a, a sort of either a collective conscious or a mentally ill figure. All of these are attempts to create communities. Some are more authentic than others. Some are very artificial. Our major characters are obsessed with grabbing hold of community, especially Bentley and Eleanor. Whether real human communities will come out of the changes introduced by the system by our heroes remains to be seen. Dick does not give us easy answers, but provides a slight window of hope. So that is pretty much what I wanted to say about Solar Lottery, but there are a few more themes we should highlight just to be complete. One of this is media in class. We are told that the unclassified are separate from the classified culturally by what they watch and how they consume media. I don't know if Dick got this from 1984, but he could have. Orwell, uh, in that novel, of course, you have the lower classes who aren't really that heavily controlled by the state, not like the middle party members. But the lower classes, the proletariats, proles, I forget what they're called, but the lower classes were distracted by pornography and other vulgar culture, lotteries, things like that too. While mass culture of democracies tends to be more homogenized, right? You think about, you know, I, I could walk go into a bar and talk to anyone about, at least if I was in America, uh, talk to anyone about Game of Thrones, right? Or talk to anyone about Family Feud, talk to anyone about any number of television shows or, or Taylor Swift, whatever it is, right? There's a homogenized culture. There's a kind of a common cultural foundation. This is really different from how it was in the Middle Ages where you had the high and low culture. Dick restores that separation between high and low culture. So mass cultures of democracy tend to be more homogenized and, and accessible. But there are still deep gaps between what the classes watch sometimes. And there's certainly kind of the pompacity of the rich who might go to operas, even though they don't enjoy it, right? And, and say, oh, I don't go to baseball games. Now, one thing to say about this is post-scarcity and high culture is something I think Dick might be missing here. Uh, as an appreciator of classical music, he must have been aware of the radical transformation of records, of recording, and what it meant for classical music. Before recording... You had, if you wanted to listen to an opera, you had to buy the ticket. You had to go there. You had to get a suit. It was a whole thing, right? Poor couldn't do it, usually, or not often. With recording, anyone can get an opera cheaply in their home and play it whenever they want. And now with YouTube, it's even cheaper, right? It's essentially free to listen to that stuff. Post We're now post-scarcity in high culture. In the old days, high culture was easily controlled the supply you know if you wanted to see classic music you had to go to like the court of the emperor or something think of amadeus it's not that way anymore right and i think that's part of the democratization that comes with post-scarcity it's a great model i think of what post-scarcity can offer for us next gender this is the first time that dick had time to map out an entire world and we get a taste of gender relations here he talks about women in, uh, in stories that came before this quite a lot. But here we get a kind of a big picture uh, that allows us a big canvas he can paint on. And we get a little bit more about gender. He, he's not particularly great at writing gender relations, at least not at this point in his career. But he does try here. Women do have limited opportunities in Solar Lottery. They cannot be quiz masters. Um, you do seem to have traditional marriages. Uh, and we're going to see other novels where he plays with this idea of marriage. Uh, 
Um, one of my favorite is the game players of, of Titan on that. But um, we got some genetic lottery here, of course. And I suppose they could justify it by saying whether you're born a man or a woman is just another level of the big solar lottery. Modesty is apparently not a thing in the future either. I don't know if this, he's doing this to titillate younger teenage readers or something, um, kind of perking the ears of his audience. But here, women undress freely. They sunbathe in the nude. Uh, promiscuity is not apparently frowned upon too much. They're not required to wear tops, so women often don't have tops on. Dick does not make much of this, but just mentions it in passing. It's just taken for granted. Our hero is given a little bit of a love triangle here. We have Eleanor, shares with Bentley a desire to change his system, but she has less power. She's an unclassified. She's also stigmatized by being a former teep. She's very desperate for community. And she finds some in pursuing a romantic relationship with Bentley, but eventually she needs a cert to, to serve Eric, and she does that, and she dies for that. And then her desire for community is her undoing in a way, her inability to really bravely venture out and do something bold like Beric undermines her. Reed is presented in the end as sort of a possible love interest for Bentley, but she's that's not really an important subplot, and she has other things to do at the end. She's off with Cartwright to, you know, the frontier or something at the end. It's not really clear what Cartwright's going to do. He's passing on Quizmaster to Bentley. Eleanor is by far the more interesting of the two characters. We also in here have the commercialization of sexual relations. Prostitution is not stigmatized. It's pretty open. You know, it's not a big deal, right? No one, no one really talks about it as a sin. Um, a few more things. Peleg. Peleg is someone with a multi, multiple personality disorder by design. I think it's important to point that out. Uh, Dick is very interested in mental illness. He writes a lot about it. He's got several novels that deal with mental illness. He's got many stories that deal with mental illness. Paranoia in particular is one of his favorite. But here we got someone with multiple personality disorders, right? Now it's programmed that way, by, but it's this randomness of coming in and out. So I think that's interesting. And that's all I really can say about that. And one last thing, the whole idea of a randomocracy, is there any value here at all? Um, Dick's critical of it in, as the way it manifests here in this, in this novel, but we do know of societies that tried randomocracy. Uh, the Athenians had one of their uh, deliberative bodies to be a randomocracy. We're all citizens. So you had to be male, you had to be a citizen, but you would serve, and I think it was like one-year terms, and you couldn't serve again after that. So over the course of a lifetime, you had a good chance of serving, you know, the, the state in this, you know, in this legislative assembly. So here's my proposal, a radical proposal. There was an amendment to the Constitution that was proffered around the time of the Bill of Rights. And this would have said there'd be one legislator for every 40,000, no more, no less than one legislator for every 40,000 people. If this were the case, we'd have what, like... 900 or 1,000 people in the House of Representatives. I say we restore that idea. I think the House of Representatives is way too small. The founders of the United States wanted representation to be local, as local as possible. So let's restore that idea. Let's bring it back. Let's build a bigger chamber. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be just 400 some. It can be bigger. We could easily... Um, Double it. No, I hesitated there because I think my math was wrong. We, we'd actually have like 7,000 or so um, 
representatives in Congress. But still, I, I stand by that. So one for every 40,000 um, people. And then let's make it random. Let's choose people. We can create an algorithm that chooses people where about 50% will be women. You know, racial minorities will be represented based on their representation in the population as a whole, but it'll be random, right? Service will be compensated impressively, so people will be urged to set aside their careers for a year to serve. And I think they'd be much better representatives than we'd get out of voting. We can keep the Senate as a as people we vote in, uh, we elect, but make the House of Representatives a randomocracy. That's that's my proposal. What's presented here of just of, of making the Quizmaster um, random is, is doesn't seem to work because we don't really have a sense of democracy here. But I think randomness and democracy are not incompatible values. Well, anyways, that's what I want to say about Solar Lottery. Thank you so much for listening to this series on Solar Lottery. I would love to hear your comments and, and hear your own ideas on this novel. Um, so for now, we'll return to the short stories, picking up where we left off. I, I want to do these works of Philip K. Dick in chronological order of, of publication, roughly. But I wanted to get a novel in there first. I've been kind of eager to talk about Solar Lottery for a while. It's, it's one that I didn't talk about in my book very much. Um, because pretty much all the themes here are talked about in better ways in other works. Um, but I think it's an important work. And I've, I've for a long time wanted to say something about it. And I also wanted to get a novel into the mix. So we're not just looking at stories. But I'll be returning to stories for a while and hoping to get through 1953 and in, into 1954 before I pick up another novel, which will probably be, like, what's the next one? Cosmic Puppets? Man Who Japed, one of those two. Um, but I'll do that. I'll, I'll get that up there uh, probably in a few months. But for now, I'm going to return to stories. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, please make any comments. If you have views on Solar Lottery, I'd love to hear your opinions about them. I really... Um, I'm really interested in, in getting your feedback. So thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. How nice a dame you can be I know the way you've treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me A lady doesn't leave her escort It isn't fair